you get to a point you're like okay well maybe we, we need to stick at this because actually um you know everyone's so invested all these stakeholders there's been funding assigned like it's all very complicated to get this project up and running and to have got the results that it's got so far and you might kind of flog a dead dead horse sometimes you know and you might be afraid to pull away from it because you've already invested something in that on today's show we're talking to sophia goldberg data scientist working at sky and we're finding out why actually enterprise be a place that data scientists really see as a valuable destination. This is Tech Talks, your twice-weekly technology podcast with myself, David Savage, powered by the Harvey Nash Group, where we bring you insight and news from across the technology industry. Uh, Akish, how's the tube strikes? Uh, yeah, not great. Um, it's absolute carnage on, on Black Friday, uh, to be honest. And I'm, I'm actually in the office because... Um, yeah, I've got a few things to do here on a Friday, but it's uh, it's not ideal, mate. To be honest, you'd think that the tube. Well, lots know, of people heading in for, for sales. I think so, mate. I think I think so. I, th- I think that's why they've done it. Otherwise, I mean, what's the point? Like, you know. Um, but anyway, oh, mate. So you think you think they've done the strike because people are heading in, and it's a time where they can actually make an impact with it. Yeah, and also I think it's because of the night tubes, um, so the twenty-four hour ones. And I mm-hmm. think they start from this weekend. So the first weekend that they were meant to start, they've just gone, you know, sod it. We're just going to block off either one. So, yeah. See, I think it's interesting. Like, I would have imagined most people would have done Black Friday online. Yeah. I mean, if, did you wake up to like 60,000 emails from places where you shopped before? Where you've no, they all go to spam for. I don't know. I'm not oh, really? Oh, really? Yeah. Literally this morning, my first like 15 minutes of waking up, I think I must have just delved through like emails from anyone and everyone like 60% oh 15% oh I was oh shut up and it was like literally do a couple of things I was like oh these look nice clicked on it oh I haven't got my size oh I haven't got my size and I gave up I was like you know what forget it thing is the, the sales never end now I'm, mm. never, I'm a bit blase about sales because it seems to be a sale all the time mm, mm. There's, but you can always find a bargain somewhere right like mm. I think so yeah and is, it, is, it, is it Amazon now has tech Monday yeah. You've got Black Friday and it's Tech Monday, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. Where you could get loads and loads of cheap gadgets. Amazon Fire stuff mostly in it, really. But Don't need that. No, exactly. So I'm not really fussed by it. It might just be us because we're not too bothered and we're not exactly, you know, the shopaholic type of people. But some people there's probably only, like there's it. There's only so many things you can have in life as well. Correct, correct. And also there's only so many things you can keep in your house as well without just, you know, trying to, find space to put things so i'm a i'm a very yeah minimalist simple kind of guy so yeah we'll let others crack on with it okay fair enough fair enough well look talking of things that you can have it almost makes me think of products and today's chat is with sophia goldberg who's going to talk to us all about data science and building products in the right way so we'll hand over to today's interview and we'll come back with some comments on it afterwards so this afternoon, I am talking to Sophia Goldberg. Sophia, thanks for making some time because it is, it is 4.38 on a Friday. Let's let's be honest, you're, you're probably sick of working. So here oh, I am welcome. asking you to talk about work for a little bit longer. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. How's your week been? Yeah, week's been good. Um, uh, it's been quite busy this week. At the end of sprint, we work in sprints. So um, end of sprint is always a little bit hectic. Um, but good, yeah. Had some really good engagement. So it's been a good week, yeah. 
Now, I met you recently because you were on a panel at um, the Big Data conference that was held at uh, Big Data World, rather, that was held at Olympia, I think a month ago, maybe a little yeah, bit Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Uh, and it was on a panel of fairly, I'll say this from, from a kind of an academic standpoint anyway, fairly intimida- intimidating kind of people. You, you yourself have a PhD and people who are kind of very well, <laughs> well kind of thought of in, in the world of data. Um, but it was, it was interesting because whilst you have a PhD and you obviously have an academic background, you now work for Sky. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, a bit about my background. So yeah, I did a PhD in theoretical physics, um, which I loved, and physics will always be really close to my heart. Um, but when it sort of came to the end of my PhD, and I was thinking about continuing in academia, so that would be the path of postdocs, and then ultimately like a lectureship, um, or kind of moving out into industry, I think I at the time, I felt there was just more opportunity in industry um, and kind of more collaboration in some ways. Um, and we can talk about that in more detail, actually. But um, yeah, so I decided to make the move and I did this um, faculty placement. They run this three month placement for people who want to move into data science. I did that off the back of that. You have this big demo day and you present your work. And then I joined um, a startup from that called Street Bees. Um, and I worked there for a couple of years um, and I wanted to change and I wanted to try doing data science in um, an enterprise environment. That was kind of one of the big driving factors for me wanting to switch to, to, to Sky in particular. Um, and yeah, and I've been at Sky for about a year and a half. I'm now a senior data scientist there, um, really enjoying it. Um, I'm an innovation AI, which is a part of the org that focuses on um, build, you know, you, you, you're given the time to work on more innovative products that are maybe a bit more risky sometimes mm-hmm. as well. Um, and yeah, and I've been, I'm also the scrum master of my team now as well. So we work in scrum, um, which is a particular framework, a way of working in agile way so that you can kind of deliver value incrementally rather than in a waterfall fashion where, yeah, you deliver something over like six months. So yeah, no, it's been good. And I've really enjoyed the last year and a half there. You've, you've almost gone in the opposite direction to what a lot of people do, because a lot of people get a job in, in enterprise and then they're like, oh, I want to, I want to go work for a startup. Yeah. What, what was it that, that made you go? I really, I mean, I know you've touched on it there, but but in a bit more detail, why was it that you were that were so interested in enterprise, having worked in a startup environment? Yeah, I think, I mean, there are definitely still aspects of startups that I always really enjoy working in, but I think you can kind of try and create some of that environment. Um, in an enterprise environment too, by using techniques like working in Agile and working in Scrum, um, which can really make you iterate fast, um, failing fast, things like that. And sometimes, you know, I've heard in, well, I know in some enterprise environments, you're quite afraid of failure and quite afraid to try new things. Because I guess you've got your customer base already and you're already like, you know, then risk averse because you've got this customer base whereas in a startup you have no customers that's why you're a that's why you're a startup otherwise you wouldn't be a startup so um I think there's that kind of risk element but when I when I was thinking uh, you know when I was back in in startup world and it is really enjoyable like you can build stuff and be a large proportion of the company essentially because you've built something and you know it's a massive it could be a massive product that is you know a flagship product for the company um but I think I wanted to learn, yeah, how to build 
like bigger products maybe um and also products that have bigger data associated with it so um if i compare like what i worked in previously although we did have some big data if you compare that to an enterprise environment it's completely different you know you're working on millions and millions and millions of users with many many more kind of interactions with the products that they're working on so kind of billions of data points and you're managing that and you're building machine learning models to help customers get to for example content that they want you know and they want they would enjoy it's a completely different problem to working on a smaller scale um you also have just different techniques and ways of working and when you're scaling as a like technology company and that i wanted to learn about um and I've enjoyed it. I actually really like it. So, yeah, it's been good for me. <laughs> Let me ask a question that might be stupid. Um, as a data scientist, surely what you want to do is get results from the data, meaningful results or or answer questions that, that are being posed. If you've got a smaller data set, I totally get what you're saying. Uh, but I, if you've got a smaller data set, surely there's, there's possibly less legacy and more... Um, maybe more more structured data in there that you can make use of. If you're coming into Sky and you've got millions of customers, is there a, is there a slight concern that you've got to spend a lot of time getting the data in shape to actually get the answers from it that you're looking for? Not in my particular use case. It could be for some people, but not for me. And that was because in my previous company, we were dealing with a lot of unstructured data. Um, so that was a lot of like open text, NLP, mm-hmm. natural language processing data from users um, and things like that. Whereas at Sky, for example, when we're working on, um, for example, one of the things our team works on is recommendation systems. Um and personalization across Q, um, SkyQ. And, um, you know, with that, we have a lot of kind of quite structured data, actually, because it's like we have quite curated metadata information that isn't like Twitter data, which is like, you know, a bit of a mess. Anyone who deals with, you know, natural language processing when it comes to like users feeding back, it's, you know, it can be messy. There's techniques you yeah. use to deal with that. Um, yeah, whereas at Sky, a lot of the data we have, fortunately enough, when it's the metadata about our content, it's already curated and a lot of the interaction type data. Yeah, there's some, you know, amount of processing that's required there. But, you know, for example, um, if you have like a watch of, you know, 10 minutes, that's quite a distinct uh, category of like they've interacted with that piece of content and that can be a really good signal to use um so kind of it wasn't that case for me to be honest um but um yeah it was actually kind of structured in both um and there were aspects of unstructured in both um I think it's more the machines you use is what I'm thinking of like the computational power required to train and handle these algorithms that was kind of the big jump and I think if you haven't been in an environment where you've had to deal with that big 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 data problem you kind of might you kind of want to learn about it as a data scientist you want to get stuck in and yeah so that that it was good for me yeah i suppose they are all considerations that you would be aware of theoretically when you're in academia or when you're when you're studying uh mm. before you get that first job is is it stuff that you really have a grasp of though until you go into industry is that something that kind of you, you fully kind of got before you started 
in a private organization or or a or a or you know maybe not private you know but enterprise anyway yeah that's a really good question i think in some aspects in some research environment so you can be really exposed to the big data problem um so as i said natural language processing or if you're doing like image recognition if you have like a lot of image data or a huge amount or you can kind of build language models based on the entire internet and they often say a lot of nonsense in those models because they're trained on the entire internet but um you know yeah, you can have a big data kind of problem there, but often it would be spinning up a big machine on AWS, Amazon Web Services or something like this. Um, whereas I think there's quite a different problem with industry where you're often you're continually processing data it's not like a batch job where you're like mm. oh I've got a data set I need to transform it as a one-off train that model and I've got a baseline it's you know you've got data continually feeding in and so you've got to like transform it continually you've got to update your model continually it's a very different process um so although there's some similar aspects in you know terms of uh, computational power or how you would train on for example um you know uh like going beyond uh, cpus for example that could be a similarity there are differences and definitely the kind of the continual big data stream that you get from working in a large organization is very very different to academia um where you tend to have more standardized data sets so you you've worked within within um within corporate environments anyway you've worked on both sides of events you've worked in startups and you've worked in large well large enterprise businesses um Certainly, I imagine there are elements from both that you you admire. What yeah. do you think? What do you think one can learn from the other, and vice versa? Yeah, a lot. I think um, so. I think a really good thing about startups, um, which I go on about quite a lot, I guess, is there are quite a few things about them. But one thing in particular is their ability to be very agile and flexible, and they can pivot, and they have to pivot. You know, it's necessary for them to survive. They, as I said they haven't got a big customer base a priori like if they did they wouldn't be a stuck called a startup um so they've got this big learning curve to go through and they've got this they have to gain customers they have to gain create a really good product and in the process of doing that you often have to pivot so i think sometimes in an enterprise environment um, some people are afraid of pivoting and that's because say you know you've invested say three months in a project four months in a project and then you get to a point you're like okay well maybe we we need to stick at this because actually um you know everyone's so invested all these stakeholders there's been funding assigned like it's all very complicated to get this project up and running and to have got the results that it's got so far and you might kind of flog a deck dead horse sometimes you know and you might be afraid to pull away from it because you've already invested something in that um, whereas in a startup you just can't invest in it you're like okay if this isn't working even if it's four months down the line you just have to change because you're going to lose customers you're going to lose your series b or whatever it is and you need to focus on essentially adding value quickly um so i think the way that like enterprise can learn from that is definitely by employing kind of techniques or framework using agile techniques in particular to be able to deliver products in a 
in a faster way um, and delivering value more incrementally because I think the, a key problem is definitely like yeah flogging that dead horse <laughs> like when it's actually you know when that product is you know you need to move on and you need to you know fa- focus on kind of failing fast or what I heard the other week is learning learning quickly as well well failing fast we don't like saying yeah yeah exactly (laughs) even though I I actually do find it quite good because in a but but yeah I understand that hang on no it's failing fast is okay it's move fast and break things that (laughs) that everyone's kind of moved away from so but that's interesting that it's learning quickly okay yeah yeah. I think I think that's definitely a big thing enterprise can do and encouraging and you know moving away from waterfall moving away from an endless list of requirements towards a, okay that requirement might not list might not actually give you a product that makes sense like when mm. you put it all together it might look a bit weird if you were just moving faster and you actually if you actually just delivered smaller pieces of value like in a in a constant cadence then we could see it all come together and maybe we'd realize that half of those requirements aren't necessary and we need actually other requirements to get to the vision so i think that's a good strategy or that's what I found at least has been a really good learning and what I really encourage in you know my in my part of the organization I'm in um is to and and the wider company as well is to really try and avoid being waterfall try and avoid the list of requirements um and yeah I think that's less likely to happen in a startup environment now a couple of episodes back on the show, we had James Hetherington, the director of UCL's ARC, the Advanced Research Computing Centre, um, uh, as a guest. And I sent it to you last yesterday or last night, you listened to it, because I thought you might find it interesting. And in there, I thought there was quite an interesting admission, because academia tends to hold itself in, in quite high regard and, and maybe look down a little bit on industry. But James said that, you know, a lot of PhD candidates and so on will start their academic career, but then decide that they are excited by industry because they can learn what good software looks like. And I just wondered what you thought about that because I I thought that was quite interesting for someone to actually say that. Yeah, it's definitely really true. And I think academic coding is like infamous for just being absolutely disastrous (laughs) because, you know, in... um, because there's kind of a lack of accountability I think in academia sometimes like if you understand your code um that's good enough and often in academia it's almost like everyone working in academia is their own startup because they Mm. all want to get funding they all want to get a very good lectureship they're all trying to kind of make it if you like like a startup is whereas sometimes in a you know in a startup with a team and you're not just on your own doing a startup say in a team you actually it's important that you have very good common understanding that the code is commonly maintained that you have good tests because if so and so goes on holiday and you're left with a massive code base to maintain how are you gonna how are you gonna manage that if it's not transparent so it's like really important and they they call it in um you know in software they call it like the bus number as well, which is, I mean, it's an awful awful way of putting it. Um, but it's like how many people, or, or the, here's a nicer one, what they call it, the the lottery. Uh, some people call it like the lottery number. So how, if you, you know, if you won the lottery and they left, how would you, how would your team cope with that? Would, would the right. whole product just be destroyed? Because you've got one person knowing such a huge amount of the code base or is it well-maintained and there's like good, 
good coverage of knowledge and under common understanding. And that's why you have these development teams. That's why you have scrum teams is what we work in. But there's other forms of agile and other ways of working as well. But you have teams so that you can commonly maintain code. Whereas in academia, there's just often not the same push because you're working on your own often or, or for your kind of own, you are your kind of, you are the product owner, you are the the whole company, if you like, because you're trying to make it. So I think, I don't know, I think academia could definitely learn from maybe if it employed more kind of some engineering sort of standards more within teams um, or if there was more collaboration. I mean, I definitely think it's more the case for kind of more computational subjects than in other areas of like science but in more computational physics, but even, or, or computer science, but even there, I think it can not always be great, but maintaining like good testing frameworks, things like that, making it really reproducible, having a big focus on that um, is so important in industry. And I mean, it should also be important in, in science. And it would also make it more attractive to stay in science, I think, if, um, if the code was better. So yeah, I definitely think, there are probably techniques that academia could learn from yeah for sure like it is is some code in academia is just no one likes it <laughs> so, so yeah. it's the last question i think a lot a lot of this has been really interesting to find out what someone who you know in a fairly short space of time has experienced a number of different avenues and has you know become a, a senior data scientist but you 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 mentioned Physics, theoretical physics, that was your that was your real passion. You've still got a soft spot for it. Yeah. There will be other um people thinking about sciences at university and might not be thinking about or they might be studying sciences at university right now and they might not be thinking about tech as mm. a as a career route. What would you what would you say to them from an industry point of view where we are crying out for people with your skill set to become data scientists and they're there, but they might not just make the leap. Yeah, um, I definitely think, for example, especially with a career like data science, if you want to just try it, just try it. If you join in a nice team of people who you can learn from and kind of upskill on the job, um, there's lots of teams out there that have kind of capacity and want to invest in their people in that way. Um, I do think it's, you know, to encourage people as well, like when you're building, if you like building stuff, building cool stuff with nice people, with people who are thoughtful and bright, like often you'll find these people in, tech, you know, in tech companies, working in tech teams and yeah, it really is. You are really an engineer. You're a builder. You're like, you know, you're a craftsperson putting stuff together, putting a product together. Um, so if you enjoy building things with people, I think tech can really be good for you. And I think sometimes there's a bit of a, you know, some people think, oh, in tech, you just sit there coding on your laptop on your own. Um, but often, you know, modern techniques, because of what I've said about, you know, the bus number and things like that, you try and get a good understanding across the team there's pair programming things like that you're often working off one another you're like testing each other's work so a lot of the time it is very collaborative and you're not like sitting on your own in a little room and I actually think there's kind of more of that in science sometimes than actually in industry uh, where you're building it with a team um 
yes, yeah, so I, th I think it can be really good for people who enjoy building things, working with people, working on some tricky problems. Um, and you can definitely just try it. Um, There's quite a complicated career path, I guess. Some people who I know have um, done data science and then have kind of become product owners or vice mm. versa. So you can really get a feel for technology by being hands on with it. I think it's been fascinating to talk to you. I think there's a, there's some really good points in there. So thank you for giving up some time at the end of your week. No problem. Uh, and have a great weekend. Enjoy, happy Halloween, because we're recording on the 29th of October. So happy Halloween to you. And thanks for enjoy, having me, David. <laughs> enjoy any trick-or-treating activities that may come your way. I imagine there will be knocks at the door. Um, but yeah, thanks for your time. Thank you. Right, I say right towards the beginning of this interview that it's almost like the reverse of what you'd imagine someone to have career-wise. Because... We're talent professionals, let's say that, and be very open about it. Mm. Our expectation is that people start in large enterprise, and maybe they want the challenge of a startup, right? Mm. Mm. Which is, I, I would say, the traditional way of going, but when it's the other way around... Yeah. I, I say traditional, I say that's probably the norm that people um, you know, do. Certainly. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I think, I think when it's done the other way around, that's... You know, it's almost that that can work and has worked. And like she says, you know, it, it can have very, very positive effects on the kind of large enterprise whereby new styles, new new ways of thinking, diverse, you know, diversity in terms of knowing this can be done differently or this is done in, in another way um, or certain, you know, kind of um, the, the agile way of working and, and showing true agile. Um I think that's that, that's that's really really good. Well, I also think it's interesting because look, you you work with a lot of financial institutions, and we all know that there's a horrible shortage when it comes to data scientists. And the answer so far has been to throw lots of money at people, right? And I'm not saying that that this is kind of a situation where it's like, oh, we don't need to pay them lots of money. The market is what the market is, but there may be a different way of talking to these people that's not being done which is along the lines of, you know, how do you build, how to build bigger products? Sophia wanted to move into an enterprise environment because she wanted to know how to build bigger products. She wanted to know how to build products with data attached to them, with billions of data points and machine learning models. And that was a completely different problem that she wasn't able to tackle unless she was working in those kind of environments. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think, um, I think in terms of just her her knowing her coming from a background and actually being able to probably explain to others at sky that maybe had not been in similar situations or similar but got you know kind of bumped into uh problems or situations in the past she's probably be able to know look this is what i can do and then going back onto your point of chucking loads of money at it we see that day in day out right i mean look if you if you open up linkedin or if you open up like a a, a job board or whatever and, and you want to apply for jobs you look at some of the you know some of the rates and salaries being offered I don't necessarily I think that, that that surely is a short to medium term solution right unless you're grooming or unless you're kind of um, getting people ready at a junior level to go and actually develop their skills within data science or data analytics and these sorts of you know disciplines those people who are earning the money that sort of thing they have a shelf life as well they might go into other things and then it leaves like a massive um, gap or, or a space, you know, um, and, and especially when it comes to kind of new product design and new product development. 
I mean, if you if you've got a shortage of people in that kind of data science element, that that's a massive cog, yeah, removed kind of straight away. Um, so, I, th- I, th- I think I think the way that she, what I really found in the interview, I don't know if you got this when when you were actually speaking to her, was she actually sounded very very passionate and very like, you know, very like driven by kind of what she's doing and and how she's doing it. And I think I think if anyone well, to be fair, I'd say if anyone's ever got an interview or or going to be working with Sky and what kind of wants to know, you know, the, the the state and mindset of their team, listen to listen to the interview, right? Listen to it from the, the horse's mouth. I think it's great. I also think you say they're passionate and drive. What what strikes me is this desire to to learn and to upskill, which we know is is hugely important in the industry. Again, we often think about startups as being that learning environment. Or at least that's been how I've always phrased it. You know, you get your hands dirty. And she kind of alludes to elements of that. You know, you're going to really have an opportunity to learn in a startup and build something. But she also talks about, from a data science point of view, that computation power um, is required. And that's a big jump. And she said, you kind of want to learn about it as a data scientist. And again, if you're trying to attract this incredibly rare skill set in the market right now, the fact that the enterprise organization has the resources to have the computational power to allow these people to learn, it's not just the structure and the rigor and the and the engineering um, rigor and and, and uh, discipline that you're looking for here. It's the fact that they, they literally have the machines available to allow people to do in practice what they've learned in principle. Yeah, 100%. And I think it's like anything, right? If you learn something or if you're getting taught things, you want to go out and practice it, right? You want to have the facilities. So it's like sport, for example. If you're practicing, you know, to run a certain distance and, um, you know, or to, <clears throat> or to throw a certain distance or shoot, whatever, you want to have those facilities in order to when it comes to game day or when it comes to, you know, the actual event, I, in this case, the, the, the kind of day-to-day workings and the, and the projects and programs that they're working on, you want to be in that environment that can support the skill and nurture the talent that you've kind of got. So um, I think it's great. And, and for someone like Sky, to be honest, I mean, this might sound a bit dopey, but I didn't expect them to be that bigger, you know, kind of evangelists on the, the kind of data science side didn't really know kind of what they would be doing for a day. So you just don't think about it, right? Like I watch Sky every evening, I'm not going to lie, and use it and have been a a customer of theirs for over 10 years. <laughs> but then you don't really think about it. I just think like, you know, they've probably got some UI, UX type of people and, you know, networky type of things rather than, you know, big data, data science, that sort of stuff. And yeah, man, I, th- I think it's, it's very, very good. I think there's also a really good, clear message in there for, the enterprise organizations when she says that um you know you can't flog a dead horse uh enterprise environments could be scared of pivoting because everyone is so invested um i was listening to that thinking about you maker who were on the show recently who were a startup with four years worth of research and effectively chucked it in the bin because they realized that they needed to pivot um now that's an extreme example but it does show the need to be flexible and to move and sometimes if you've invested a lot and you've got that structure and legacy that's harder to do so i think that's that's a really good message in the other direction from 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 startups to enterprise yeah no 100 100 percent. and i think um I, I think it just bodes well for, for for customers and 
um, I guess just the industry in general, where you've got, you know, powerhouses, whether it's a startup, enterprise level, um, that sort of thing. And I think, um, I think, yeah, that's just a, a quality way of going. Sophia, thank you for being our guest. We're going to take a very quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about Bulb. A couple of years ago, Michael and Jacob, two friends from London, were both thinking about their consumption and sustainability as a whole. Michael, a professional footballer at the time, realised he had no options when it came to sustainable sportswear. Overconsumption and underuse was all too common. Hilo was born, a sportswear brand fighting for the planet by changing mindsets. They started with a running shoe made with seven natural materials, and the shoe can be recycled at the end of its life. As a company, they've offset their carbon to beyond zero, making them carbon negative. You can find out more about Hilo and support their mission at hiloathletics.com. That's H-Y-L-O. We support the Hilo movement. Right, Bulb Energy um, sadly collapsed earlier this week. It's been in the news a lot. Um, there was an article talking about the fact that it was too good to be true. Um, had a, an article here that really hit home that I thought I'd just focus in on. Bulb's major strength was its marketing it excelled at attracting new customers through lucrative referral payments and green energy claims and managed to secure willing investors by talking up its credentials as a tech startup. Bulb, unfortunately, has joined that list, hasn't it, of um, startups who overemphasize what tech is capable of or how much tech they have under the hood. If we think about WeWork mm. and their fall, if we think about Theranos in... Um, in the health tech space, kind of promising to disrupt a vulnerable industry uh, and ignoring legacy noises. There's a lot in Bulb's story where basically you've got a tech innovator that, that promised a lot and maybe had a bit of snake oil going on. And perhaps the lesson for technology here is, yes, absolutely, tech can make a difference and tech can disrupt an, uh, an industry, but equally, Listen to some of the legacy voices, listen to some of the experts, listen to people who know industries. Don't just go in there thinking that you can change something and you know better, because quite often those startup stories tend to be the ones that, that collapse and fall apart and are shown to be uh, not quite the sum of their parts. Bull in a china shop, right? I just think it's a bit like you just you just got to have a bit of respect and a bit of you know, a, a sense of, uh, I, I guess, just acknowledgement of of the boys that are already in the industry. And look, as as consumers like you and I, we're all up for disruptors, right? We're all up for. I very nearly switched the bulb earlier this year. When yeah. I moved to the new house. I was like, yeah, good company, green mm. credentials. You know, as a as a consumer, I decided not to in the end mm. Um, mm. because when I did a little bit of research, I wasn't quite sure, and also because of the state of the energy market right now. Yeah. Full stop. Yeah. But yeah, um, yeah absolutely. I, I just think I just think you know just 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 kind of we're, we're all up for it. I think it was a great idea. It is it is still a great idea, right? But yeah, obviously yeah. they just green green energy providers, sustainable energy providers are needed. Yeah, hundred percent. But also it's something. It's a little bit like maybe the task was I think a little bit too big and the over promising and you know trying to kind of achieve things that hadn't really been achieved before i mean you know someone's got to be the first one to do it right i guess is what i'm trying to say but if you're trying to achieve things that no, no one's ever done in terms of the figures and you know having that kind of green sustainability element and 
you know, claiming that they were doing certain things and to secure investors. And I just think take it nice and slow, take it easy, but I'm sure they'll be back and the, and and the guys, you know, behind them will be back again. Um, But yeah. But how many times does this need to happen before the investment community also is a little bit more savvy? Maybe that's unfair, but I kind of look at these big cases. Maybe these cases are always going to happen. Yeah. But there does seem to be a lot of investment that goes on uh, based on hype and promise. But I think think they they must have had a good six years, though, right? Six, seven years. Yeah. Yeah, but burning burning through cash while the gas is turned out rather than... I don't know. I, I don't know necessarily if they would have seen the the ramifications that this would have down the line. That, that, I mean, there's, there's there's a bit of a suggestion that one of the founders was a little bit more interested in the celebrity and being at Downing Street, perhaps, mm. than building the company properly. Sitting, sitting with Boris Johnson and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. certainly. When you look again at Theranos and, and Elizabeth Holmes, kind of self-styled the next Steve Jobs, mm. it's like almost almost was more interested in the celebrity of being a startup founder. And that's a cautionary tale, you know. Mm. Find a problem and try and fix it because you're passionate about the problem, not because you want to be a tech startup. Yeah, guru. Yeah, not because you want to be the next Mark Zuckerberg. But anyway, yeah. You know. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah. Hopefully they'll be back. But yeah, great idea. Um, glad you didn't switch over to Bolt. Um, yeah, that's pretty positive. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't be sat smiling on a balcony in Spain at me at the moment. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> I'm in a dressing gown. It's quite cold. Don't worry. You might be a bit worried. But anyway. Record, went, went for a swim yesterday and I can confirm that even though I'm in Spain and the sun is shining, it was bloody freezing. Beautiful, mate. Beautiful. And I got rained on this morning at uh, quarter to eight in uh, in Shoreditch High Street. getting off the Lovely. Train. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> well, we'll be back next week. Akish, thanks for your time. Everyone no have problem. a lovely weekend. I'm